Hey, welcome back to The Few Show, everybody. My name is Bud. I am Chief of Staff at Exfusion.io and co-host of The Few Show. I am excited to be joined today by my guest, James Kaplan. James is co-founder and CEO of MeetKai, a conversational AI voice assistant and search engine shaping the next generation of artificial speech intelligence. James, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being on. Thanks, Bud. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's it's great to have you. Hey, uh, I read that when you were six years old, you had a passion for AI and coding. Yeah. I have a seven-year-old, and she has a passion for playing in the sand and throwing it up in the air. Um, how did you have a passion for coding and AI at six? Um, That's something a little bit different, I think. So back then, I, I really enjoyed games. I mean, games back then, much simpler than games that people have these days. But, you know, in particular... Um, I don't know if you remember the Oregon Trail games that were like, oh yeah, you know, very standard sort of like take a board game, put it onto a computer and make it a computer game. And I thought that was so cool. Like, cause all of my experience, the games prior to Oregon Trail were just board games, which I loved. Um, but it yeah. was like my first, I don't want to call it like a grown up board game, but it wasn't like, you know, checkers or anything else like that. And I just found it so interesting. Like how did the game flow? How did you go to these different areas and run these different problems and what was happening on the other end? Um, and that's kind of what motivated me to start thinking about like game AI. And, you know, like it's, it was nice because back then it was so simple. You know, the way AI worked back then was really like different decision trees and different paths. So it was really easy, even as a kid to start seeing, oh, it checks if this is true and then does that. It's just a bunch of conditionals. So that kind of got me sure. on that path of like thinking about, you know, how is AI working? And, you know, back then I didn't know it was AI. I just thought it was the bot, you know, that was the bot. Um, and that was kind of something that I always liked. I mean, from then on, you know, I always liked games and I always liked thinking about how the bots worked in those games. I mean, kids these days though, I see, you know, they play Roblox and things like that and people go pretty crazy there with what's possible. Um, so I think that, you know, it's just the way people will look at games and the way people interact with games kind of, I think, motivates that type of thinking of understanding how things are working underneath. That's, that's fascinating. I, uh, I played that game and I didn't think of any of that. I just thought I better, I better shoot the squirrel and, and feed my kids so I, I don't get, you know, diphtheria and die. Um, so, uh, right away I can tell our brains think a little bit different, um, which is great, uh, because we need that. Um, so you wrote your first, you wrote your first bot at nine years old. Now, for those of us that are less informed, and I'm going to put my hand up here, I, I am not a coder. I am not, um, anyway on, on that side. Like I said, I'm the chief of staff. I am the person that deals with the people in the company. I, I am not on that side of it at all. What exactly is a bot? How does it relate to the AI? Can you explain that to me uh, and the viewers? So um, the bot I wrote back then, I think it was for Neopets, but just in general, a bot is intended to be um, a way of replicating what a human would do if the human were doing the same actions. Um, and, you know, that doesn't necessarily need to just be games. I mean, these days there's like sneaker bots where what they do as a task is they go to a sneaker site, wait for something to show up in stock, click the add to cart, click the buy button, and that's a bot. 
Um, you know, and it's really just any task at all like that where humans are doing the ta the steps, but it's very tedious. There's not much like creativity happening. They're just following a flow. Like those were kind of the standard bots. Um, and you know, these bots for a long time have been used for people trying to, I don't want to say cheat, but kind of cheat in games where, you know, a lot of tasks in video games are very repetitive, you know, for M MMOs for years, online games, they would have all these different types of repetitive tasks where, you know, yes, a person could spend eight hours going from point A to point B doing something and then going back to point A, or you could write a bot to automate that process and do it while you sleep. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's the evolution though has been that as games and other experiences have gotten more complicated, you know, the, the steps and the tasks aren't so linear. I mean, you know, like with the shoe bot, right? In the old days, I mean, one of the first bots that I was exposed to was actually for eBay um, of like people having different bidding bots where it would check if this much time is left in the auction, bid this, and then it closes. Um, but these days there's a lot more things going on, even in these like e-commerce bots, like for tickets or sneakers or anything like that, where, you know, there might be multiple different shoes that open up at different times and different sizes with different inventories and the bots have to make calculated decisions on which ones to pursue. Um, so it's, it's like, you know, bots are having to become more intelligent. And I think the line in my mind has always been that there didn't seem to be a clear through line between bots and their evolution and AI, but it started to become a necessity. Um, and you know, these bots are not welcome by the other side. I mean, when I was nine, I got banned from Neopets. And I mean, a few years ago, like for Pokemon Go, I actually wrote the first bot for Pokemon Go. And I got myself nice. and like tens of thousands of people permanently banned. Um, <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's always the cat and mouse. And you know, the, the challenge is that like websites don't want bots. They want people. Games don't want right. bots. They want people. So people are having to do all these things like when they're building bots to make them look like a person, you know, like for shoe bots, cause such a fun thing is that like all the sites don't want all of their inventory to go to shoe bots that will then be scalped on secondary markets. Cause that sucks. So they implement all these types of things to try to detect if it's a person slowly navigating and moving their mouse from one part of the screen to the next part of the screen, maybe they're getting their credit card number wrong, hitting a backspace, like all these types of things that we do as people when we're using e-commerce sites. They're trying to look for those types of signals because a bot would never make a mistake, right? They would always directly click on the button as quickly as it loaded, etc. So then the bot makers see that and see, okay, we now have to make our bot look like a human. And at some weird point, it's like the bot is no longer just a simple way of repeating tasks, but starting to look like an actual form of artificial intelligence. That's, that just blows my mind. That's crazy. But it just reminds me that people are awesome and, and the way that we think and, and do things is, is just cool. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, a form of, of evolution on, in science and, and computers, you know, it's, it's just, I don't know. It blows my mind. Um, I'm glad we have people like you out there that can, that can figure this stuff out. At the same so, time, though, congratulations and yeah, go ahead. Like, sorry, I'm sorry. It just makes me think that like, you know, a lot of these bots though, aren't like, it's not like zero sum because it's hurting other people. You know, when someone is putting together a, a bot to scout, to get, you know, PS fives 
that basically means that no one else who really wants to buy a PS5 can buy one because it goes to the bots. Um, and, you know, it, it's one of these things where it's like, when I first made a bot for a game, it was like a single-player game. So I wasn't really hurting anyone. But at a certain point, it starts becoming this thing of, like, Neopets, for example, had, like, an online economy. So if you're botting and collecting an unfair advantage over everyone else, then it starts hurting them. Well, that's... That's like with everything. Anything can be used for good yes. or bad, right? I mean, exactly. anything can. So it's just who who's behind it and what's their what's their value system and, and what do they want to do with it. So uh, nevertheless, the mind behind it and yeah, it's just it's just amazing to me what people can do. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like people can use it for good, people can use it for bad, and and I mean, how how do we figure that out, and how do we stop that? That's that's something that we need to figure out for sure. But um, so you you wrote that that Pokemon Go bot, you get kicked off. Um, how old were you when you did that? So Neopets was nine. Pokemon Go was like when it right when it came out a few. What was it 2016, 2017? Uh, time flies pretty quickly now. Um, yeah, it does. So, okay, so you were. I mean, I've been doing. You bots. were a little bit older. When yeah. You, yeah. It, 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 um. Sorry, I keep it around. No, no, no it's fine. I was just thinking, like, <laughs> lots have always been my kind of side project. To be honest, is like just through my entire, you know, life just because I find them so fun and interesting. And, you know, it was one of those, those things where it's like, for some people like programming, computer science, things like that, there's like a moment where it like kind of clicks and you think, wow, this is so useful. Um, for a lot of people, that's just like an automation where you you see like before I could code, I was doing these like all these manual spreadsheets and all this like copying and pasting to all these different places. And then you realize, oh, I can just automate the entire task and save so much time by spending, you know, an hour now, I will save 10 minutes a day for the rest of my life. And like, for me, writing bots was that point where it kind of clicked for me in programming where it's like, this is so cool. Otherwise I would waste my time playing the game, but now I can write a bot instead and have it play for me. I mean, the downside of it is it made me not like playing games as much anymore, but it was just an always interesting thing to see. And, you know, I haven't since the Pokemon Go stuff, um, done any bot work just because of you know there's nothing really that's come out that's interesting to bot for and that was like interesting just because of the scenario of like people moving around the world and how you simulate that from a bot like just by spoofing the gps coordinates as it's moving around um sure it's just interesting as a challenge so is that kind of what got your juices flowing for for ai I mean, I mean, really, I mean, I know you, when you were six, you were interested in AI, but I mean, is that really what got your juices flowing for, Hey, I, I can really use AI to make a change or, or where did that interest really come from? It, it's tricky. It's like, it's hard to think of like a specific moment where I'm like thinking, okay, AI versus bots versus programming. Um, you know, it's, I've always liked math too. So it was, it's always been one of those things where you know, I honestly did more math than I did CS initially. Um, since back then, like, 
you know, there were no laptops or tablets or anything like that. Um, sure. I mean, there were laptops, but they were like clunky and all that. Um, but in any event, um, you know, AI to me means a lot of things um, because, you know, it, it's really spectrum. And it's kind of a term that can mean everything from like very simple types of AI for, because, you know, a very simple problem can have an AI that solves it completely. Or you can have these scenarios where it's a very complicated problem. And we talk about like self-driving car AI and it's not that good yet. So it's like, right. it's all still AI, but in some scenarios, it's like shockingly good, you know, like for Go, where AI can dominate there in the game versus self-driving cars, where we hear stories like every other week about self-driving car runs into stopped pedestrian. Like just like every week, it seems like there's some new story like that. Um, so it, it's, you know, as an individual, I never thought of AI as like, okay, here's this like one thing that will solve all problems in humanity, but more so just like, wouldn't it be nice if it was kind of a motivator of like, wouldn't it be nice if we could have an automated solution for this? Um, and AI kind of is that in many ways, since automated solution means, you know, an intelligent solution where you're not necessarily like pre-programming all paths. Um, like to me, what AI really means the difference between AI these days and what I think of as AI now compared to like Oregon trail and those types of things is in those scenarios, everything is modeled. You know, there's a perfect understanding of the game of Oregon trail where the computer can figure out like every single possible path that could be taken and what to do. You know, you don't feed your, you don't mm -hmm. kill a squirrel. You get dysentery three turns later. <laughs> um, versus like these days, like for self-driving car, it's impossible to model everything and to predict everything because it's a dynamic real world environment where all the stuff's going on. So it, it, the agent, the AI actually needs to understand the problem. It needs to understand what driving means. Um, and like, that's, what's interesting me now in like every, in the space that we work in of like, how does AI understand language? Um, as opposed to just like memorizing 180 million different ways of saying something. Cause like that would be impossible, right? There's always gonna be new ways, new ways to say something. There's always gonna be new phrases that come up, new vocabulary, et cetera. But if you can try and teach to understand language in a certain extent, then, you know, it's capabilities suddenly become intelligent as opposed to just like seeming intelligent. All right. Okay. So let's, let's segue that into, uh, meet Kai. Um, we'll, we'll talk, we'll come back and, and talk a little yeah, sure. more about all that stuff, but let's go ahead and talk about meat Kai. Tell us, you know, exactly what it is, uh, what it does, and then we'll kind of get into the backstory of how it came to be. Sure. So, um, we started to meet Kai, um, kind of goes with what it is at the same time of based on like sort of observing what the market looked like in terms of voice assistants, you know, three years ago when we started voice assistants out there, Siri, Alexa, Google, and then all the other players overseas were not really advancing. I mean, I personally remember when Steve Jobs went on stage and like announced, what was it? The iPhone 4S or something. And he was saying like, here's Siri. This is going to change the way everyone uses the iPhones. And it was like, you know, the big thing. And of course they had just acquired mm -hmm. Siri as a company, but still like they were pitching it as like, this is the future of iPhone. Um, but now, you know, after the years went by, nothing really developed. 
um, the field wasn't moving forward rapidly in the same way that it was kind of promised. And, you know, we saw that as kind of a real flop because like, if you look at how people perceive the iPhones, like different categories and facets, and like, you look at like user satisfaction studies, then, you know, almost every single feature that people have on an iPhone, they love, you know, 80 to 90% of people like iMessage, 80% of people like FaceTime, like real high percentage numbers. And then for Siri, you get down to these like 15 to 20% of people like it. 70% of people don't know what it is. And it's like, what happened? And it, it's, right. it's not like they gave up. It's just that it's really hard. And, you know, I, I felt back then that the approach that they were taking wasn't going to have a future. Like they weren't on a pathway towards, you know, true conversational AI. And I think for AI, what I've always believed is that, I mean, as I was saying before, it's about like actually teaching it to understand problems. And a lot of that for AI isn't necessarily starting out with the best thing. Um, you know, it, it's a matter of figuring out a way to create an intelligence that it's on a pathway towards being better and where every iteration of it is on that forwards pathway. And, you know, based on what we saw in 2018, the systems out there were not on a forward path. You know, they, they were just kind of in loops with themselves where the end goal wasn't going to be AI. It was just going to be 1.1 or 1.2 or 1.3 of the chatbot. So, you know, we look at, we saw that and we took that as kind of like an opportunity where we said, you know, what if we just sort of started from scratch, you know, didn't build off of old architectures and old approaches and really built from the ground up um, using a new architecture and new methodologies. Could we not necessarily be the best from the start and not necessarily have the most features from the start, but could we set ourselves up on a path where continued work and continued innovation was possible and where that innovation and research would lead towards, you know, these compounding effects towards true AI. And that's kind of what Mikai is as a company is this goal of like building true conversational AI where, you know, we are constantly getting better and our current offering so far, um, you know, we have a number of different things out through partners as well, but one of our main B2C products is our voice assistant that we really kind of just launched to test the waters and see, you know, what people would ask it as opposed to it necessarily being a fully production product yet. Um, and the feature that we're kind of showing off there is based on conversational search. Um, since, you know, I keep saying conversational AI, but it's like a really big category and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it, it's a phrase that means a lot to a lot of different people. Um, and to us, at least what it means is that any time that a human is having any form of like conversational input to any device, that's a type of conversational AI. And, you know, it, it's it really covers the full spectrum as well, though, because it's like, imagine we had, you know, doctor bots, right? Just hypothetically, a, a surgeon that could perform surgeries, then there still needs to be some way where the human is going to interact with that surgeon bot and, you know, ask them questions or anything else. Um, like, there's always going to be a conversational element because we as humans prefer to talk. We don't necessarily prefer to, like, use a complicated menu. Um, I think that was like the original appeal of voice assistance to me is that, you know, how is it that on phones where we now have to go like seven layers deep to get to something, can we still not use our voice to get there and get there in a fraction of time? And, you know, that's yeah. like, 
was my motivation. And, you know, it, it's, it's very hard because there's a reason why the other companies weren't moving forward because it's such a hard space. Um, but I think that we've kind of seen a bunch of different startups out there in a bunch of different fields. Um, and I'd like to think of us as one of them that kind of show that if you, you know, remove the, you know, organizational friction that happens at a lot of these companies and these like fears and risk calculations at a lot of these companies and just try to like do the hard work and be clever about how you do the hard work, then you can arrive at pretty cool solutions. Um, and you know, that's kind of what we've done. Yeah, it, it is a pretty cool solution. I, I was telling you right before we came on that I, I downloaded Mikai and I've been playing with it, uh, you know, today before we came on the show and, you know, I've been using it and it, it's not like, you know, Siri, it's not like using Alexa. Definitely. I asked it, you know, I live in a small town and I'm like, well, this would be a pretty good test because it is a pretty small town out in the middle of nowhere. You know, I'm like, uh, give me a restaurant to eat at. I said, what do you think of JNL Cafe? I'm like, well, I like JNL Cafe, but I don't want to eat there today. Give me something else. I said, what do you think about uh, Village Inn? And I said, no, I don't want to go to Village Inn. Give me something more high end. I said, what do you think about Simkin's Parlor? I'm like, good Lord, this thing's doing pretty good. You know, I'm like, huh, that's pretty neat. Like I could never, never do anything like that with, uh, uh, Siri, you know, It'd be like, give me a restaurant. Well, here's a list yeah. of restaurants in your area. You know, so it was, it was pretty neat. It was kind of fun to play with. Um, I'm so glad. you're doing, yeah, you're doing, you're doing a pretty good job. I was like, well, that's, that's pretty impressive for this, this little town out here. Um, it's, it's fun because like that honestly is my favorite feature of the multi-turn. Um, you know, like there's three categories of what, you know, behind the scenes of things I think that are especially interesting about what we've built so far. Um, and in my mind, the coolest one is probably multi-turn because Multi-turn, you know, the way most search engines work or voice assistants work is like you send a request, you get a response. That's it. You know, that that's how Google has worked forever. It's the white search bar. You want to change your search, delete it, do a new search. And, mm -hmm. you know, people have learned to like work into that frame of mind where like you see your results then you delete your search and you like change the way you phrase it to try to get different results. And I always thought that was so silly because if, if you were dealing with a human, like humans are not stateless humans remember what you just said to them and ha like know what you mean. Um, so we built that in as the idea of like the unit of work is not a request. It's the entire dialogue. Um, and part of that was to enable that idea of conversational search, but also it's part of kind of our bigger plans of, you know, that same type of multi-turn interaction is like especially useful in like other day-to-day -day scenarios. You know, like you can imagine like, and one of these things that we haven't finished building yet, but we have like prototypes of is like for food ordering at like a restaurant, you know, the entire mm -hmm. process of like how you order from a menu <clears throat> is, is not single flow. Like it's not, I want a hamburger with no onions, pickles, blah, blah, blah. You don't say your entire order at once in one sentence. It, it's like, you might ask for suggestions. You might say, wait, is that gluten-free? Like there's just all these different possible flows. And it's very much a multi-turn sure. experience that you have. And 
you know, we wanted to build, like, I consider conversational AI to fundamentally be multi-turn. And, you know, the duration of how many turns that is, is kind of open-ended. You know, my, my eventual hope, like right now, there's limits based on computational power of you can't remember, remember everything. Because like eventually the history becomes so large, but sure. you know, eventually the goal is that we should be able to remember everything you've ever said in a way that as you keep using it, um, it understands and preempt what you're asking. You know, right now, Siri doesn't do anything like that. Um, and none of these systems do. And it's, it's interesting because it, it's not for lack of trying, but it's just like, if you have an approach that you've built out, then it can put you into this hole where it's hard to add these new types of features versus for us, we started with this as a goal, which means that certain things are harder for us, but this one we can do. Um, and, you know, I think it's one of those things where it's like, eventually, if you look at it, like the asymptotic thing at infinity of time of development, you know, humans, if you can imagine having perfect memory of everything that someone has ever said to you, it, it's not necessarily like a perfect, it's not like you remember everything that, you know, I've ever said in the past 30 minutes, but you have your own like distilled representation of things that I've said. So like, right. that's how I kind of think of it is that like, we should look at trying to make this AI think like a human in some ways of like understanding summaries of what I've just said and summaries of what I've said over the past month and year and how they've changed as opposed to like literally remembering every single sentence. That's, that's fascinating. And, and you've built this from the ground up, right? Like you're, you and your team have built this from the ground up. Like you, yeah. you haven't used a different platform or anything. No, the, the only places that's where crazy. We use other platforms or solutions are in certain scenarios for speech to text and text to speech. Um, I'm fairly, you know, soundly of the opinion that those two fields are solved, not solved, but like pretty solved. You know, sure. the quality of voices that get generated from text to speech now are like night and day compared to like, you know, I remember having fun with like the, you know, what was it? The Microsoft say voice where you could have it say random things 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And it's like, oh, this is so funny. But now the voices actually sound like a person. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think that's, so we didn't really focus there. And on speech to text, initially we did it ourselves and we have, we do do it ourselves for some languages. Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, the phones these days have speech to text built in as like a module. And, you know, it's one of those things where I'm happy to delegate that to anyone else that wants to do it. Because at the end of the day, like from a privacy perspective, speech to text is also the most sensitive for people, I think. So it's one of those things where right. if we can get around doing it in the long term, we'd be super happy. Nice. Hmm. That's just all fascinating to me. So was it, was it a, a conscious decision to go this way with, with the speech platform into AI, or was it just, was it something that you, you were looking around and you're like, this is where it's needed most. Was it a, a frustration thing? And 
like you guys want do you guys want to stay with the speech platform or eventually do you want to do you want to expand out and do do different and more things or is this is this your path so i think that you know from the beginning we set out on this path because you know i i think that there's a lot more interesting things you can do with smaller amounts of data in like language compared to vision and then you know for ai in general there's this overarching like i don't want to call it fact but it's kind of a fact that the more data you have the better and you know you hear about all these things about like how many hours of driving footage does tesla train their cars on for the self-driving and it's like some unbelievable number of like many millions a week our new hours are collected and it's one of those things where it's like okay well you can't compete with that and then you have other sure. things for like images where you see like you know google collects every image that you ever take and use that as part of its training so we can't compete with that but on the other hand for language you know that's one of the things where there's plenty of records of text that people have written on online and books everywhere else so it becomes one of those things where you can collect the type of data you need to train. You can collect the type of data you need to do understanding. And in fact, like everyone out there, like of the, you know, the big players are using similar types of data sets that they're collecting online for language understanding. Um, you know, people are using all the text from Wikipedia, all the text from crawling the top, you know, 10 million most popular sites. There's like a full gauntlet of like different types of data. And, you know, for us, like, that's another reason why I don't love speech to text, because if you want to be in the speech to text field, you need just ridiculous numbers of hours of people talking. And likewise, for text to speech, if you want to do a custom voice and have your own voice, then you need to record someone for basically 20 to 24 hours talking and going through entire dictionaries of different ways of phrasing things, etc. But for language, we don't need any of that. And as a startup, you know, we are stuck, right? So we, we have to be clever and mm -hmm. we can choose our battles for like, what do we do? What do we focus on? So it's one of those things where it's like, do I see ourselves expanding beyond the little, the framework that we're in? Yes. But I mean, I think that, you know, right now we're still trying to see, you know, how far we can stretch because I think a lot of fields that we don't necessarily think of as needing like this type of functionality now we'll need it in like three or four or five years. Well, sure. Yeah, I, I think that this is just the, the very tip of the iceberg. I mean, you look at what computers used to be able to do and what computers can do now. I, I think that's kind of a good, you know, vision or analogy of, of what AI is, you know, where it's come from and what it's going to be able to do. Um, what are What are some misconceptions? That, that people get with AI that you that you see people have about AI? So I think the biggest ones that I've seen these days that I think are pretty important are understandings around bias. Um, since I think that's like really important and can't be ignored, but also the most important thing is to like understand how do you define it respect to a model? Because um, I mean, we've seen in the news, I think it's been the past, you know, six months to two years basically where this entire thing has been like, how do we know if models are biased? And then how do we address that bias? And, you know, there's all these types of examples. One of my favorite ones for like, can kind of demonstrate bias pretty quickly is 
like if you translate sentences between different languages, you know, you say something like, he is a doctor, you translate that to another language, and then you translate that to another one, and then you bring it back to English, um, it will say he's a doctor. However, if you say she is a doctor, then depending upon how the models translate it, when you bring it back to English, it could change it to he is a doctor. Because the model mm. says, I've seen he is a doctor much more often used than she is a doctor. Therefore, this is the correct sentence. And it's like one of those things where it's like, crap, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's not, I think the thing that people get as misconception is that there's some magical trick that the researchers can do to fix it. It's really hard because, you know, in my mind, it's not just a matter of like, fixing it, it's a matter of finding it. Like, it's really hard to think and like challenge a model because it kind of becomes like challenging a person in some ways. Like, how do you determine if someone is biased? You have to ask them questions. You have to put prod them. You have to see different ways that they interact with different questions. And like, we have to do all of that same work with a model. And it's not like a turnkey, like I'm going to make my model biased. It's something that I do when I train it. It's, it's much more nuanced. And you know, I think that that's like a simple example. I mean, we also see it in sort of some more complicated places. Like I know of a number of different like sensor companies that make camera lenses. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they, one of the big things that's done is like, how do you do low light camera shots? And like, that's the big thing that everyone talks about on phones these days of like, I want my phone to take a picture at night and look great. Like it's during the day. Um, right. So, you know, these camera companies set off on this path and a lot of what they do to do that is with AI to kind of have the lens and the uh, processor on the phone be able to differentiate, you know, where's the person from the background to do the adjustments of the levels. But if you take a company in China that might not think about, you know, people having darker skin tones, then when they build out the product, it's going to inevitably not work well for people of color. Um, and it's, it's like, at that point, they didn't even think about it because they didn't know to think about it. You know, it's, it's, right. it's, it's a challenge and I think there's a temptation we have and what gives us that incorrect assumption about AI to blame the researcher and blame the developer. But I think it's, it's not so simple, unfortunately, and everyone would like it to be simple because then you could just say, don't be biased and then the models will work, but it's just this constant balancing act. And, you know, I, I think yeah. it's a long way to go, um, unfortunately. Sure. Sure. I get that. Um, I, I, I can see, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I think I can see this working a, a, a few different ways. Um, but like lessening a, a language barrier with this could this be used like to do that if if you're say even like wartime and and you have a wounded warrior from you know the enemy or something they come in and and they're in your camp and you're trying to help them you're trying to save them right or you're out and about in another country, you get hurt, you have to go to the doctor. Can you use something like this technology as a, as a way to communicate with somebody else 
that so, you don't speak the same language? Is that possible? I think eventually. I mean, the way I think of that type of a problem and the way I see ourselves being applied to that is that, you know, the traditional sense of how we people would approach that is through translation, that you would just translate from what person said to person said. But the big problem there, in my mind at least, is that, you know, when you're doing that translation between parties, it's now on the other person to understand, well, what do they really mean? I mean, you know, you can imagine hypothetically someone is saying, like, you know, I'm constipated, I have diarrhea. And then the translation says the opposite. And then they give you the wrong type of medicine. That would be pretty bad. Well, that would be bad. <laughs> and, you know, because, yeah. like, and, you know, someone's saying something, they say it in their own language, and the translation is, my stomach is bad. Not really helpful. Um, I think that what could be done instead, and what is interesting to think about, is that the way our tech kind of works is that instead of looking at the text that was said, it's trying to extract the meaning at different levels. Um, and that meaning is sort of progressively more detailed. Um, and you can imagine building up like understandings of like this hierarchical set of like health intents of like someone is saying, you know, their problem. And instead of the AI trying to translate their problem to verbatim text to describe another language, it's instead just saying this person has diarrhea. How they tried to convey that in their original language that they have diarrhea is kind of irrelevant, right? Um, sure. All that really matters to the other side is that factual extraction. And I think that's kind of the, you know, a possible end solution there. I mean, right now, you know, where our goal has been to try to take our tech into many different regions and languages to test ourselves in some ways um, and see like. How Which far. you've done. It's fun. It's hard. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's the idea of it, and the reason why we're kind of doing it in a way, too, is that part of it is to demonstrate that it's not just, like, memorizing. You know, if, you, if you're just memorizing, then sure, you could do pretty cool things for English, but how are you going to do that in French or German or Indonesian or Polish or Turkish? Um, you need to have sort of more complicated forms of language understanding. And that's what we built. Um, I mean, the other thing that we have that's kind of nifty for sort of cross-border work is that this isn't rolled out everywhere yet, still something that we're doing in testing. But like, if you think about like a recipe, right? For, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a fun dish. Huevos um, Vancheros, right? That recipe, no matter what country you're in or what language you speak, it's still really the same recipe right? They're still the same components. Mm -hmm. All that changes are maybe the units of measure, um, maybe the directions, and more interestingly, maybe different ingredients are used for regions that don't have that type of ingredient. You know, maybe you're in some country that doesn't use, I don't know, olive oil as much, so it swaps it with canola oil or Frisco or anything else. Like, it, there's some sorts of adjustments there. But at the end of the day, the recipe is multilingual. We're not multilingual. I should say it's absent language. And right now, these days with Google, when you search for recipes, you're finding recipes on a recipe site, right? What we want to mm -hmm. do instead is kind of enable this idea of like, you're finding a factual description of a recipe that anyone in the world could also consume. And honestly, one of my motivations for that is that like, you know, I really like uh, cooking Asian food, but like, if you go and look for recipes in the U.S. for Chinese food versus you 
go on a Chinese recipe site and use Translate to bring it to English, you see very different types of recipes. Um, oh, I bet. And it's like, why can't we bridge that gap? You know, these are still recipes. Um, and like, that's been a motivation of mine for a long time. And, you know, if you think about the world as it was seen by search engines in the past, um, it's that there's a bunch of different documents, you know, a web page is a document. Um, our method and way of thinking about it is it's not documents that people want anymore. It's items. You don't want to get to the homepage for that restaurant. You want the restaurant. Um, and why should it be the case that, you know, if someone only speaks Korean in your small town, they can't also find that restaurant and they can with this approach. Yeah. And like, that's the, you know, fun part for me in some ways about different regions, different languages is that it kind of unlocks new content. Um, you know, I've always wondered, like, can you imagine how much content is produced in other countries that we have no idea about that we might love? I mean, maybe there's some Chinese podcast that would be perfectly appealing to you that you've never heard of and would never know about unless it, because it's only in China. And maybe your, your show would be very interesting to someone in Thailand, but they have no way of finding out about it. So it's like all these different things of like content right now that as much as, you know, companies like to talk about how they've opened the door for everyone, information everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. It's still kind of siloed in languages and regions. And it big reason for that is not because like of any real desire to have it be siloed, but just because the only way to find them is by searching for them on Google in their language. I I have to ask, I I have a feeling that you your mind never rests. I have a feeling that you're just kind of always go, go, go. Do you ever, do you ever just take a break? Like, do you ever just let yourself kind of relax? I, mean, I wonder, like, how do you see the world when you're out and about walking? Do you listen to people talk and are you like, man, I could help. I could, I could do something with that. Or I could, you know, see how people interact and you're like, man, I could fix that. I just have a feeling that's the way you are. I thank you for that. Yes, I, it's, I, I like thinking that way. You know, I, I, I like to ask a lot of questions. I mean, you know, even about things that aren't really in my comfort zone. You know, I was, I saw someone using one of those hydrojets on a drain, um, mm -hmm. to, like get out the woods. And I was fascinated. So I walked up and had a conversation about like, how do those nozzles work? Um, that's awesome. And it's, you know, it's, I probably should take breaks. Um, cause you know, they say all those things about like, if you are so focused on something, then you, you know, have tunnel vision and you miss potential opportunities and potential interest things. But, you know, there's just so much, I guess, inefficiencies that I see in the world. And, you know, prior to this company, I was in finance. Um, you know, I started a, I dropped out of college actually to start a hedge fund. Um, and it was a lot of, it was like inefficiencies that I saw. Um, and, you know, for that, what we did was like, you know, like option pricing for the market. There's like all of these different options at all of these different prices for all of these different companies for all these different dates. And I thought, you know, look at all these inefficiencies there are. Look at all these different ways that people are not seeing the connections and the dots. And why can't we be more efficient? Why can't things be connected? Um, but then, you know, that I kind of, could I have kept going there and continue finding inefficiencies and doing things? Yes. But at a certain point, um, 
you know, I wanted to do something more interesting that had like more applications and more types of efficiencies compared to just making sure that, you know, there was optimal pricing of volatility risk. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's definitely something I do a lot of just looking for problems or just thinking about them and I enjoy it. I mean, it, it's, oh, it's obvious. Thank you. I mean, it's fun. It, it's, yeah. it's fun to think about. And it, it's one of those things where, you know, I think the most interesting companies are those where, you know, you're not stuck in your way of like your definition of what the business is, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I think we've seen that and like, there's always like fun examples of like different companies that really do radically different things, but they still have fun with them. And I mean, I think that, you know, if you look at Google as a company in like alphabet, like there's a side of mm -hmm. like Larry Page and Sergey Brin that like, <coughs> like doing random stuff. You know, I, I, if you look at like their laundry list of projects that they've done, some of them are like ridiculous. You think, how could this have been a thing that like they thought would work, but sometimes it pans out, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I think that I like that type of approach of thinking of like, just try new things, try, you know, moonshots. And in many ways, our company is a moonshot in that it's either going to work and be really cool and do lots of things or the tech won't work, you know, and that was how we started. And I think we've done a good job of moving away from the, the tech won't work and into the, we can do really cool things, but you know, part of never stopping and part of like always looking for things and solutions and problems is being willing to actually try and fail. You know, if, if you only see things where you think I can help and then don't, or like, don't try anything there, then, you know, what's the point? Then you're just kind of yeah. having thought exercises. Yeah. So with, with that, how, how do you balance your work life schedule or do, or do you, do you just, do you just keep focused on work? Um, or do you have a work-life balance? Probably not as much as I should. And I think that this is, you know, I, I often ask other like startup founders of different companies and things like that. Like, you know, how do they have work-life balance? Um, for me, at least, you know, honestly, before the pandemic, I had a slightly more stable work-life balance. And I think many people are the same way. Like before the pandemic, sure. there was like some stability. Um, and I think that since the pandemic, it, it's been trickier because there's this idea of like, you can always be at your desk and more of the people in our company are always at the desk. And it's just a sort of fun thing of like, there's always work to be done. And like these days now we work yeah. with companies and, you know, India, Europe, Asia, Indonesia, China, Hong Kong, Mexico. So there's always like people up. So there's always this temptation I have like, okay, I can call this person and start working. And, you know, my co-founder mm -hmm. is kind of the same way in that, you know, she was in Italy actually for her son's wedding. And, you know, it was like, yes, it's 2 a.m. for her, but isn't that fine? Because she can go on to our afternoon call with so-and-so. And it was like, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a hard place to be though, because I think the risk is burnout, right? Like that's always the risk. Sure. Um, and I'm of the opinion though, that burnout I think people feel when you are working really hard towards something and that thing is never coming. Like there's no forward progress. And I think that's what made people feel the burnout the worst 
of like they're doing all this grind, you know, let's say they're building some feature and then the feature disappears. And like, I think that as long as I'm, you know, making forward progress, then I don't mind about the work-life balance. And I think that like for, you know, most people out there is like startup people that I've talked to is like, they feel kind of similarly. It's like, as long as things are, you know, moving forward, then it's good. It's when things aren't moving forward or like when you're in a rut that you need that work-life balance to kind of reset yourself. Because if you're not, if you're not moving, even if it's like, you know, like you think about the angle, right? Even if it's only like a five mm -hmm. degree angle upwards, then you know that the more time you put in, the higher you'll get. Um, sure. But when you're at that like zero degree where it feels like even if I put in a thousand more hours, it's not going to make any difference. That's when you need to get that real balance. Yeah. So when I first started here, we were in the middle of a, a five month rut where we didn't bring on any customers. And, uh, you know, it was, we, we knew we're, we know that we're playing the long game, yeah. right? And, and we knew that we would get more, but it was, it was starting to get frustrating, you know? And then all of a sudden we had four come on at the same time. And then we're just like, okay, so this is what, this is what it feels like. Yeah. We, we know that we're going to have those times where we go four or five months, maybe six, where we don't have any new customers come on. And then, I mean, that's just kind of what our, this, this is what we look like, you know, this is, this is how we do it. So I, I understand what you're saying. So we felt like we were on that zero degree, but that's actually what our, what our incline looks two like. Two degrees, three degrees, and, four degrees. Right. But it's still up. So that's the key. And, and now, now we understand that. And, and so I get what you're saying. Like it's, it's not, I, I don't think that we were at burnout, but we were, man, we we're like, man, this sucks. Yeah. But then that came and they're like, okay, we understand, we understand what this looks like. So then we got on another, you know, three month stint and we're like, no, we're good because we know what's coming. Yeah. So no, I get it. I get it. So do you have any, uh, any hobbies or interests that, that, that you like to do away from work that just kind of takes your mind off work or I like, um, cooking and I mean, I haven't been as good since the pandemic started, but fitness, um, mainly yeah. because, you know, you can take a very, uh, I'm trying to think of a way that does make me seem weird, methodological, like calculated way of thinking about it where, you know, for a mm -hmm. while I was very into like making ice cream and I was just so fascinated by like, how can you make ice cream that tastes the best? Like, what is it? Because I think we've all, you know, who doesn't like ice cream, right? Um, right. And everyone has preferences though for different ice creams. And I was just interested because like, why is it that I like this ice cream more? Um, and you know, it's, it's one of those things where there's infinite information online. You can find out about every different ice cream is made. So I went into this long rabbit hole of like, okay, how do you get the right mouth feel? How do you get the right, you know, defrost rate? Because if you make ice cream and, you know, your fat content is off, then the way it defrosts from the freezer is terrible and doesn't taste good. Um, so it's like, I could go down this long route of optimizing the ice cream. And, you know, I like that type of stuff. I did that with baking once, cookie recipes, brownie recipes, baguettes, sourdoughs. It's just, you know, I, I think even though it's not, this and not programming is still the same type of like 
you know, desire to understand something and desire to kind of crack it. Sure. Where it's like the one you can never crack it though for cooking because you can always do better. But it, it's just always sure. fun to think about like what makes something good. Just no matter where you are in the world, like what makes something good is something that can be discovered, teased out, and optimized. And cooking has the virtue of being able to happen instantly. If I said what makes, you know, a mattress good, I mean, I don't know what I would do there. I can't make a mattress. But if you just think, like, what makes <laughs> what makes for a good donut, well, you can try 50 different ways in a week. Right. So what is your favorite ice cream? So I might focus back then was thinking like how do you make high protein ice cream that doesn't taste terrible because this was like before the, you know the fad of like halo top and all those types of healthy ice creams and it was like mm -hmm. i love eating ice cream um but i don't and i want to be able to eat an entire pint of ice cream and not feel bad about it and it was thinking like well we have high protein everything else um why can't we optimize this um so it was mainly trying to think of ways of like getting the ice cream to taste like ice cream um, without sacrificing like the fat content. Because the thing that makes ice cream bad for you is either your sugar content or your fat content and balancing that. So it's like the idea of like, you don't want to use too much artificial sweetener because then it just tastes off. And everyone can tell right. it's off because of the way that artificial sweetener freezes. So there's all these different types of things I had fun with the sugar alcohols and, you know, it's, it made me dislike ice cream a lot because I just ate it so much. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's fun. I, when I'm not caring, though, I love Ben & Jerry's. Their toppings are good. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's so delicious because of all the different toppings, they don't really care about the mouthfeel, and I don't even think about the mouthfeel. You just, you just like all this stuff. Yes, exactly. I just, I'm just boring. I just like a nice vanilla ice cream. I mean, there's a lot to yeah. be said about that. I was, you know, soft serve is all the rage now in LA. Yeah. Where it's just like, just soft serve, no toppings. Yeah. There's something to be said for a good soft serve ice cream cone. But, well, I think we're going to have to start landing this plane because, uh, You've got another call here yeah. coming up in a little while. So uh, we'll uh, ask you a couple more questions, sure. and then we'll we'll get out of here. Um, I like to la ask these two to everybody that's on this. So what advice would you give to founders or soon-to-be founders that are going to be watching this? Um, don't be afraid. You know, like I think that the thing that most people worry about when they're doing a startup is either A, is it already done? B, will someone come in and do it at the same time as me? Or like C, is someone going to see I'm doing it and then do it? And it, it's that if you are already questioning yourself then, then you don't have the, you know, like you failed before you started. And I think that like, no matter what you do as a startup, very rarely are you going to be the first person to ever attempt something. And very rarely are you going to be the only person attempting it. So you have to just kind of accept that competition will occur, but still try and do it your own unique way. Um, and like, I think that at the same time, I would say don't overstudy your competitors. Um, because like, 
you'll just end up thinking like them and making the same mistakes. You should like instead look towards like who their users are and study them and understand them. I mean, let's say you're doing, you know, just any startup really. It, it's it's think about who your users, your customers are, and let that be what defines you, not your competitors. Nice. I like that answer. And then what is the best way for viewers to get in touch with you if they would like? So I have a Twitter account. Um, I should use my Twitter more often and just only mention it in certain places. So yeah, Twitter. I'm on Twitter. All right. Sounds good. At and then you can. Okay. And then you can go to meetkai, M-E-E-T-K-A-I dot com. And you can check out their website. It's a it's a nice looking website. It gives lots of information. Um, like I said, I downloaded the app, started playing with it. Uh, I, I'd suggest you guys do the same thing. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, quite a different experience than uh, than you'll get from using Siri. James, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. I had a good time. Thank you, bud. Thanks for having me.